Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Hey, Sids. Welcome back to Girl Good Night. I'm Return of Lamac, and every Sunday you can relax to binaural beats while I read you a melanated bedtime story. Tap into this show on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. All links will be in the episode description. Submit original work and future episode suggestions to girlgoodnightpodcast at gmail.com. Help your friends sleep in melanated peace. Girl, share the show and show us some love with a five-star rating and review. Tonight, we will be reading Mini Sacrifice, written by Frances Harper in 1869. Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, born in 1825, was one of the first black women to be published in the United States. She worked with William Still to help refugee slaves find freedom in Canada through the Underground Railroad and was an activist with the American Anti-Slavery Society. In 1894, she helped found the National Association of Colored Women and served as vice president. She died at age 85 in 1911. Many Sacrifice was originally published as a serialization of three novels in the Christian Recorder, a journal by the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Many Sacrifice is the story of a woman living in the North whose identity and heritage is kept from her until she unexpectedly meets her birth mother, an escaped slave. She marries a man whose racial identity and heritage were also kept from him, and they move to the South to participate in uplifting and empowering members of their race. Now, close your eyes, take a deep breath, and sleep in melanated peace. Let us now return to Carrie Wise, whom we left parting with Minnie. Where is Minnie? said two of her schoolmates who observed that Carrie had come home alone. Oh, said she, one of the strangest things I ever heard of happened. Well, what was it? said the girls, and by this time they had joined another group of girls. Why, this morning, Minnie and I walked out shopping, and just as I came out of Carruthers, I met an old friend of Mother's and stopped to speak with her. And I said, Minnie, just wait a minute. She passed on and left me talking with Mrs. Jackson. When I joined her, I found a colored woman talking to her, and she was trembling from head to foot and just as pale as a ghost. And I said, why Minnie, what's the matter? She gasped for breath, and I thought she was gonna faint, and I got real scared. And what do you think Minnie said? Why, she said, Carrie, 
This woman says she's my mother. Her mother? Cried a half dozen voices. Why, you said she was colored. Well, so she was. She was quite light, but I knew she was colored. How did you know? Maybe she was only a very dark complexion white woman. Oh no, she wasn't. I know white people from colored. I've seen enough of them. A colored woman? Well, that is very strange, but do tell us what Minnie said. She asked her where she came from and where she lived. She said she came in yesterday with the Union soldiers and that she had come from Louisiana. And then Minnie told her to come with her and she would find a place for her to stop. And did she leave you in the street to walk with a nigger? Said a coarse, rough-looking girl. Yes, and so I left her. I wasn't going to walk down the street with them. Well, did I ever, said a pale and interesting-looking girl. That is just as strange as a romance I've been reading. Well, they say truth is stranger than fiction. A deceitful thing to try to pass for white when she's colored. If she comes back to this school, I shan't stay, said the coarse, rough girl, twirling her gold pencil. I ain't going to sit alongside of niggers. How you talk? I don't see that if the woman is Minnie's mother and is colored, it makes any difference in her. I'm sure it does not to me, said one of Minnie's friends. Well, it does to me, said another. You may put yourself on an equality with niggers, but I won't. And I neither, chimed in another voice. There are plenty of colored schools. Let her go to one of them. Oh, girls, I think it real cruel the way you talk. How would you like anyone to treat you so? Can't help it. I ain't coming to a school with a nigger. She's just as good as you are, Mary Paddock, and a great deal smarter. I don't care. She's a nigger, and that's enough for me. And so the sentiment of the school was divided. Some were in favor of treating her just as well as usual, and others felt like complaining to their parents that a Negro was in school. At last, the news reached the teacher, and he, being poor, weak, and vacillating, had not manhood enough to defend her, but acted according to the prejudices of society and wrote Thomas a note telling him that the circumstances made it desirable that she should not again come to school. In the meantime, the news had reached their quiet little village, and of course it offered food for gossip. It was discussed over tea tables and in the sewing circle. Some concluded that Thomas should have brought her up among the colored people and others that he did perfectly right. Still, there was a change in many social relations. Some were just as kind as ever. Others grew distant and some avoided having anything to say to her and stopped visiting the house. Anna and Thomas, although superior people, were human and could not help feeling the difference. But some business of importance connected with the death of a relative called Thomas abroad, and he made up his mind that he would take Anna and Minnie with him, hoping that the voyage and change of scenery 
would be beneficial to his little girl, as he still called Minnie. And so on a bright and beautiful morning in the spring of 62, he left the country for a journey to England and the continent. Let us now return to Louise LaCroix, whom we left disappointed and wounded by Minnie's refusal. After he left her, he entered his room and sat for a long time in silent thought. At last he rose and walked to the window and stood with his hands clenched and his finely chiseled lips firmly set as if he had bound his whole soul to some great resolve. A resolve which he would accomplish, let it cost what it might. And so he had, for he had made up in his mind within the last two hours that he would join the Confederacy. That live or die, sink or swim, survive or perish, he would unite his fortunes to her destiny. His next step then was to plan how he could reach Louisiana. He felt confident that if he could get as far as Louisville, he could manage to get into Tennessee and from thence to Louisiana. And so nothing daunted by his difficulties and dangers, he set out on his journey and being aided by rebels on his way in a few weeks, he reached the old plantation on Red River. He found his sister and Miriam there, both glad to see him. Camilla's husband was in Charleston. Some of the slaves had deserted to the Union ranks, but the greater portion she still retained with her. Miriam was delighted to see Louise and seemed never weary of admiring his handsome face and manly form. And Louise, who had never known any other mother, seemed really gratified by her little kindnesses and attention. But of course, the pleasant and quiet monotony of home did not suit the restless and disquieted spirit of Louise. All the young men around here were in the army or deeply interested in its success. There was a call for more volunteers and a new company was to be raised in that locality. Louise immediately joined and turned his trained intellect to the study of military tactics. Day and night, he was absorbed in this occupation and soon, although many was not forgotten, the enthusiasm of his young life gathered around the Confederate cause. He did not give himself much time to reflect. Thought was painful to him, and he continued to live in a world of excitement. News of battle, tidings of victory and defeats, the situation of the armies, and the hopes and fears that clustered around those fearful days of struggle made the staple of conversation. Louise rapidly rose in favor with the young volunteers and was chosen captain of a company who were permitted to drill and stay away from front as a reserve corps, ready to be summoned at any moment. Miriam and Camilla watched with anguish Louise's devotion to the Confederation and many sorrowful conversations they had about it. At last, one day Miriam said, Miss Camilla, I can't stand it no longer. That boy is gonna lift his hand against his own people and I can't stand it no longer. I've got to tell him all about it and I just think I'd bust into it if I didn't tell him. Well, Mammy, said Camilla, 
I'd rather he should know it than he should go against his country and raise his hand against the dear old flag. It's not the flag nor the country I care for, said Miriam. But it's just that one my own flesh and blood should join with these Sekish kids' own people. Well, Miriam, if you get a chance, you can tell him. Get a chance? Miss Camilla, I was bound to get that. Louise was somewhat reticent about his plans, for he knew that Camilla was a strong union woman, that she not only loved the flag, but she had taught her boys to do the same. But he understood from headquarters that his company was to march in a week, and although on that subject there was no common sympathy between them, yet he felt that he must acquaint her with his plans and bid her and Miriam goodbye. So one morning, he came in looking somewhat flushed and excited and said, Sister, we've got our marching orders. We leave on Thursday, and I have only three days to be with you. I'm sorry that I have seen so little of you, but my country calls me, and when she is in danger, it is no time for me to seek for either ease or pleasure. Your country? Louise, said Miriam her face paling and flushing by turns. Where is your country? Here, said he somewhat angrily, in Louisiana. My country, said Camilla, is the whole Union. Yes, Louise, said she, your country is in danger, but not from the abolitionists in the North, but from the rebels and traitors in the South. Rebels and traitors, said Louise in a tone like one who felt the harsh grating of the words. Whom do you mean? I mean, said she, the ambitious, reckless men who have brought about this state of things. The men who are stabbing their country in their madness and folly, who are crowding our graves and darkening our homes, who are dragging our young men, men like you, who should be the pride and hope of our country into the jaws of ruin and death. Louise looked surprised and angry. He had never seen Camilla under such deep excitement. Her words had touched his pride and roused his anger, but suppressing his feelings, he answered her coolly. Camilla, I'm old enough to do my own thinking. We had better drop this subject. It is not pleasant to either of us. Louise, said she, her whole manner changing from deep excitement to profound grief. Oh, Louise, it will never do for you to go. Oh, no, you must not. And why not? Because, and she hesitated. Just then, Marion took up the unfinished sentence. Because to join the Sekish is to raise your hands against your own race. My own race? And Louise laughed scornfully. I think you're talking more wildly than Camilla. What do you mean, Miriam? I mean, said she, stung by his scornful words. I mean that you, Louise LaCroix, white as you look, are colored and that you are my own daughter's child. And if it had not been for Miss Camilla, who's been such an angel to you, 
that you would have been a slave today and then you wouldn't have been a confederate. At these words, a look of horror and anguish passed over the face of LaCroix and he turned to Camilla, but she was deadly pale and trembling like an aspen leaf, but her eyes were dry and tearless. Camilla, said he, turning fiercely to his adopted sister, tell me, is there any truth in these words? You are as pale as death and trembling like a leaf. Tell me if there's any truth in these words. Turning and fixing his eyes on Miriam, who stood like some ancient prophetess, her lips pronouncing some fearful doom while she watched in breathless anguish the effect upon the fated victim. Yes, Louise, said Camilla in a voice almost choked by emotion. Yes, Louise, it is all true. But how is this that I never heard it before? Before I believe this tale, I must have some proof, clear as daylight. Bring me proofs. Here they are, said Miriam, drawing from her pocket the free paper she had been carrying about on her person for several days. Louise grasped them nervously, hastily read them, and then more slowly, like one who might read a sentence of death, to see if there was one word or sentence on which he might hang a rope of reprieve. Camilla watched him anxiously, but silently, and when he had finished, he covered his bowed face with his hands as he said with a deep groan, It is true, too true. I see it all. I can never raise my hand against my mother's race. He arose like one in a dream, walked slowly to the door, and left the room. It was a painful task, said Camilla with a sigh of relief, as if a burden had fallen from her soul. Yes, said Miriam, but not so bad as to see him fighting against his own color. I'd rather follow him to his grave than see him join that miserable sickish crew. Yes, said Camilla. It was better than letting him go. When Louise left the room, a thousand conflicting thoughts passed through his mind. He felt as a mariner at midnight on a moonlit sea, who suddenly, when the storm was brewing, finds that he has lost his compass and his chart. Are you still up? Girl, good night.